0: Welcome back to the AUA Inside Tracked podcast. My name is Gene Cohn, the chair of the AUA Residents and Fellows Committee. Today's episode features a panel discussion presented at the AUA 2019 Residence Forum on career paths and opportunities outside of academic or hospital based practice. The panelists are Drs. Joseph Macaluso, Angel MD, Gary Kirsch, founder of the Large Urology Group Practice Association and of the Urology Group in Cincinnati, Ohio, and Asim Shukla. Assistant Global Secretary of the AUA. For the last portion of the program, we're going to have two roundtable discussions focusing on uh, practice opportunities for after residency. Uh, I know that many of us are exposed uh, primarily to academic practice, maybe with some community hospital employed uh, access on the side, and and some residencies are lucky enough to have the opportunity to rotate with some private practices to get that exposure. But there are so many more opportunities out there uh, for us after residency, Uh, and we really appreciate the opportunity uh, to have Drs. Kirsch, Macaluso, and Shukla um, discuss some of the the kind of less traditional off the beaten path opportunities. Um, So first off, we'll start off with Dr. Kirsch. Uh, He's the founder of the Urology Group in Cincinnati. He was a founding member of LUGPA, um, and he's going to talk to us about some of the opportunities uh, that exist in uh, private equity.
1: Well, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Well, I find it fascinating that I've been invited to talk about non-traditional options in in practice because I have a feeling I'll be invited back in a year or two and I'll be moved over to the traditional options in practice session because what we're talking about now are trends that are occurring in independent practice that are likely to continue to occur over the next uh, couple of years uh, and beyond. Uh, So, uh, I was asked to talk about uh, private equity investment in independent practice. I do represent uh, independent practice. Independent practice is in my core. On my tombstone, they're going to put, he worked to save independent practice. That's what I've been all about for the last 25 years. And so, I want to just give you in a few minutes uh, some concepts, some ways to rethink uh, about independent practice as we uh, emerge into a changing healthcare care landscape and uh, what so so firstly I would ask why would we concern ourselves with this issue of uh, equity investment well first of all as I said healthcare care is changing and I'll just put a couple brief slides up about that and urologists perhaps not the residents but urologists like me who are responsible for 35 physicians and 300 employees and 65 percent market share in a, a service area of two million lives are asking if we can continue to do our duty to our patients and to our colleagues and to our employees if we uh, simply keep things the way they are medicine is always uh, changing and uh, and we're asking that question and more Moreover, uh, urologists around the country are being bombarded with practice opportunities that maybe they haven't even uh, sought after. So, how is healthcare changing? Uh, we all know this. Healthcare is consolidating. Uh, on this slide, you'll see uh, health system merger activity, and on this slide, you'll see uh, the uh, increasing trend of physician employment uh, by health systems. And last year, the AUA survey data indicated that 50% of urologists are now hospital-employed. Now, I don't stand up and disparage any employment model at all, hospital employment or otherwise, but uh, we continue to believe, and perhaps it's beyond the scope of my brief comments here, that independent practice is a very important part of the landscape of American medicine. Uh, independent practice is, can be a better, faster, cheaper way of providing care, a more innovative way and flexible way of providing care uh, and can provide uh, innovation in the marketplace and we actually think that's uh, going to be a direction that the health system goes in the future. So we're interested in preserving uh, independent practice. Now how is healthcare changing? We all know all of this, that uh, reimbursement complexity, increasingly ne- uh, sophisticated business functions are required and uh, even on the clinical level it's very hard to master all of the clinical aspects that you're being able to learn as and subspecialization is really necessary to avoid burnout. Uh, so what can non-hospital employed uh, independent urologists do to avoid uh, all of these complexities and navigate the future? The answer is very simple. We need to acquire scale. Now, as I said, I run a group in uh, Cincinnati. We have 35 physicians, 65% market share. You might think that we have all the scale we need. But forward-thinking urologists, and I like to think I'm one of them, believe that we don't have all of the scale that we need. That as we get to an increasingly national landscape of healthcare delivery, uh, that as we get into value-based contracting and all of the other things that we're going to need to do, that it's not going to be enough to be in a two-man group, much less a four-man group, much less a 35-man group in Cincinnati, Ohio with dominant market share. We're going to need larger structures that'll help us in the future. So the question is, How can we do that and and what do doctors think about that? Well, doctors are afraid of larger structures and scale and the reason they're afraid of it is because they think they're gonna lose their independence. So I would say to you, if you're looking at independent practice, you need to start thinking about a different way of looking at independent practice and just to give you a brief example, the only truly independent practice in America today is a solo practitioner, which very few, few of us are. In a 30-person urology group, we got some scale, as I said, but we're only 1 independent as individuals. We're still subject to the will of a 30-person group. So how can we think of independence in a new way? And I would submit to you, and, and this is a take-home message I'd like you to go home with, that the sine qua non of independent practice is changing. And what it really means is a practice in which the physician owns an equity position, and in a hospital-employed arrangement, not disparaging it, no physician has an equity position in a traditional employment uh, model, and there are disadvantages to that. When you have an equity position, you have greater legal protection, frankly, and uh, you can profit from the growth of the enterprise uh, on the stock value of the enterprise um, if it does well uh, in an. Ongoing basis to augment income so I do have a few other slides but um, I think I'll stop there because I want to respect the time uh, in about 20 seconds so again my message is a successful urology group of the future will offer meaningful scale while maintaining um, while maintaining equity ownership Uh, And the way the market is uh, looking at um, equity ownership today is by taking groups like myself, and you're going to hear from Dr. Siegel uh, in a few minutes, and he's going to talk about traditional practice, but in fact his practice isn't traditional at all. It's just like the practice that I'm describing. Uh, And uh, you're you're going to to learn increasingly when we have more time to discuss in the panel or at other sessions uh, what it means, uh, the ups and and downs of bringing in an equity partner, everything's not perfect, but everything's not bad everything can be quite good and we need to start learning about this option in the landscape thank you I'm sorry I went a little over
2: good morning thank you again it's been about 20 years since I had the privilege to lecture to the residents in this format I'm going to talk about a subject that most of you May have heard of or may not have heard of, but probably not that familiar with, and something that I've become involved with and have enjoyed very much. Um, why should you care at this point in your career while you're worrying about getting a contract or paying off your debt about investing in healthcare startups? Um, because frankly, the urology that you are trained to do today will not be the practice that you practice in five years or ten years or fifteen years. That's how rapidly genetics, engineering, artificial intelligence, all these new developments are occurring and your practice will look very different. And I've asked why physicians in particular should look into this and I've, I've got some reasons I think you should consider it. First, who's more qualified than you to assess a new technology, a new device, a new drug, a new application for the iPhone related to health care? You're certainly as qualified as any Wall Street analyst to do that. So you should be involved in that. Secondly, despite the fact that many of you raised your hand about making $500,000, my first year contract was $52,000, but in any event, most of you will not be wealthy enough to write the traditional check that an angel investor writes, which is a quarter to a half million dollars. You'll live well, you make a good living, but you will not be wealthy enough to do that. Uh, maybe a few of you will, but very few of you. Third, the reason I like is that it's, a, it's sort of a social investment. Uh, you're investing not only in health care for the community, but also potentially for yourself and your family for new ventures that may improve health for everyone. Fourth, and I definitely believe this, the true health reform that's occurring is occurring by physician scientists, bioengineers, biomedical uh, researchers. It's not coming from Washington, D.C., It's not coming even from necessarily medical societies, although I love the AUA. Um, It's coming from innovation, and you should try to be part of that. You've heard a lot about burnout. It exists, but I personally have found that this is a great way to kind of fight burnout because I'm involved in all types of healthcare ventures, not just urology, but across the board. And lastly, you should know that historically doctors in general, but urologists in particular, are very conservative when it comes to money. I presume most of you are. But over the last 40 years, urologists have been very entrepreneurial. This goes back to the advent of lithotripsy in the in the early 80s and lithotripsy partnerships that have evolved from that. So I think as a group, we have evolved where this is not something that is, that is totally foreign to us. Now, a group that I'm involved with, and there are others, called Angel AngelMD, uh, formed out of the Jobs Act, which was passed by Congress in 2012, which allowed for crowdfunding. You've all heard of Kickstarter and these other things. Because this is what allows you to write a check for maybe $10,000 and achieve the same level of participation as a traditional angel that would write a check for a quarter million or a half million dollars. Most of you, when you get that $500,000 contract, you will be able to write a check for $10,000. And what we're trying to do is connect only healthcare startups with physicians and health interested investors. We currently have about 15,000 actually registered investors, of which roughly 10,000 are physicians. We have almost 1,500 healthcare startup companies registered, uh, about 1,000 of them are highly active. And we've actually uh, deployed about $15 million in investment capital in 40 transactions, 40 different companies. And I'll give you just an idea of some of the companies. Uh, Probably we have about 50 to 60 registered companies that are directly related to pelvic floor urology, OBGYN, etc. Uh, These companies that we've invested here run the gamut from football helmets to protect you from intracranial brain damage which is a big issue uh, to uh, orthopedic implants to new drugs for cancer so there's a whole list of things here uh, that we vet and we look at and I would hope that you would consider this as you go out and start making a little a little more money pay off some of that debt It took me 15 years to pay off my debt so I do understand but you will have the opportunity to look at some of this and why not you why shouldn't it be you You as physicians, you as urologists, you have as much knowledge about this area of of development as anyone else. And there are many, many people at your universities, in your communities that are working in these areas who are looking for participation as advisors, as researchers, as investors uh, from young doctors like yourself. So I'm easy to find. If you have any questions, I'll be happy to answer them. And thank you for your time.
3: Thanks, Dr. Kirsch, Megalusa. Those were uh, eye-opening for me too. A lot to learn after almost uh, whatever 15, 17 years of practice. So mine's a little bit of a different change of pace. I don't know if I actually belong in the same uh, panel, but uh, my career track has taken a little different uh, path. Uh, I'm a pediatric urologist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So pure academic, practice-wise. However, I really integrated international, uh, which as I know almost uh, from some survey, 60% of you sitting here are going to want to do some international work during your career. You're going to be involved in some uh, international collaboration or project. I'm also now the Assistant Secretary of the AUA, so I help John Densted in covering Asia and Australia. So about once a month, I'm on a plane to an Asian country uh, at their meetings, representing them, teaching lessons in urology, the best of AUA courses, uh, different uh, memorandums of understanding and whatnot. But this was a passion of mine that I developed right after my fellowship. So in 2001, as I, I went as an IVU scholar to India uh, where we tackled bladder extrophy. And, I, and as many of you know and you'll see in your textbooks, bladder extrophy is one of the more devastating anomalies that affects uh, children. It's a very difficult operation here in the United States, sort of the last operation you learn in pediatric urology and you never quite master. But we knew that it's, as I learned as I went to India and saw the numbers, uh, that congenital anomalies are a major problem that impact developing countries disproportionately, and there's a lot of reasons for that, but you can see that 94% of the burden because of the population in those countries, and also because of birth rates. If you look at the number of births per year, um, uh, you'll see that, uh, for example, there's 130 million live births in the world. Most of them happen in developing countries, and you can estimate there's almost close to 3,000 new births with bladder extrophy every year. And if you manage them improperly, the consequences are severe. You can have, you know, upper tracts can be blown out. You can lose a phallus. You can have long-term urinary uh, tract infections and incontinence. So how do we – we also know that if we increase our own volume, if your experience increases, just like with prostatectomies, just like with ureteroscopies or anything else, the more you do, the better you get at this operation. So how could we do that? How could us American surgeons who see a volume of this, but not nearly as much as we think we need? I mean, at a busy institution, you might see five, six, maybe seven new extra fees. And I'm talking about CHOP, uh, Boston, Hopkins. Most uh, children's hospitals will see one case a year. How do you get good at it? So we built a sustainable sort of long-term model where uh, multiple American hospitals team up with a children's hospital in, in India, Um, And we wanted to build it in such a way that this would be a long, sustaining uh, collaboration. So how do we make that work? Well, first you have to be committed to return to the same institution. We decided that taking on complex anomalies, it's very unfair to fly in, do a whole bunch of cases in a cool part of the world, tourism, and then fly back and never go back to the same place. So we committed to one hospital that we will continue to return here for as long as you need us, and as long as it takes. And when you manage something so complex, you have to be sure that they have the capacity to handle such a thing. Um, and so uh, once we determined that, uh, we decided that we could build a way where each year we return, and this is you know, the hospital ward where all of the patients get admitted uh, the night before. So this isn't, you know, we're gonna come in and do a lot of cases. These are all the patients we did from previous years and new patients who all return all of them are analyzed by our team because bladder atrophy needs follow-up surgery for a lifetime potentially. So you have to be committed that once you've touched one of these kids that you're gonna return every year and now we're into our 12th year that we've been going back to the same institution you know, operating is one part of it. The follow-up care, uh, training those local uh, doctors, and then making it sustainable as a research endeavor. So, you know, we followed these patients closely, made sure that we could deliver results for something like extrophy that are uh, equivalent and scientifically justifiable. We just published that data in uh, JAMA Surgery uh, so that this is respectably uh, 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 robust data that we're following. So that not only are we touching these patients, this is our entire team, it grew from two surgeons now to an entire uh, collaborative team that you can see there. So uh, you know, we're including uh, doctors, nurses, social workers, uh, pa- parent support groups, uh, you know, there's a, a varied areas in which our uh, research endeavors are now moving forward. So it's essentially building a center of excellence. Um, And then these are all the different areas that we have improved because of this collaboration. And then the way we make this sustainable is by bringing other physicians uh, there to learn. So it becomes a course. So each year, multiple surgeons from the United States uh, uh, pay a certain tuition to join us for a week of bladder extrophy immersion. And out of that, we've been taking patients from many different parts of the world that come with their surgeons to India. Because bringing a patient to CHOP it's several hundred thousand dollars to take on an extra few patient, keep them for six weeks. It's not sustainable for the number of need there is. So instead, we bring the patient. Our team flies to India. Patients come from all over the world. We take care of them there with a team that is now fully trained to be able to offer this. And the same model is now being replicated by Ron Matthews of Johns Hopkins, and now SIU is being replicated in Uganda. So it's a reproducible model that we're taking forward And I'll just recognize Rich Grady, uh, who uh, passed away uh, very tragically a few years ago, but was the key to beginning our collaboration. Uh, So, Dr. Kirsch, you you sort of
0: ran out of time a little bit when discussing um, specifically the the private equity um, opportunities that are existing. Did you want a a minute or two to expand on that?
1: I never turned down a minute or two at a microphone. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, So I I think that... um, It's a complicated subject, and to quote a friend of mine, one can't talk about private equity investment. It's not a sound bite. It's a complicated subject, and I think what uh, physicians need to understand is that there's a value uh, to acquiring scale, as I said, and there's a value to having help with that. There's a value to bringing in a partner who has experience at uh, professionalizing uh, medical businesses and and, uh, helping them grow and run more professionally like businesses and that the the doctor doesn't have to fear that because doctors mostly want to focus on practicing medicine and the ability to safely practice medicine without having to take your time to worry about macro and MIPS is enhanced if we bring in the right partners. When you have a private equity partner, it truly is a partner, and they are not interested in the clinical practice of medicine. That's always walled off, and in fact, it's probably legally walled off. So it's it's a synergy between... Uh, business people that can help you uh, with the business functions of medicine and acquiring scale and navigating all of the IT and HR and regulatory challenges without having to do it by hook or by crook poorly as physician-run entities. and The the doctors that are hospital employed, they don't think about it, but they have the support because they they basically focus, unless they go into administrative path, which doctors can do under my scenario as well, they basically focus on health care and have the hospital staff doing that work for them. And we need to find models for that in independent practice that I've described.
3: Thanks, Dr. Trudwell. Can you talk a little bit about um, what kind of resource and infrastructure is needed here, like from either a contract perspective or from the hospital, to allow you to not use vacation days or your own funds to make these kinds of trips? Thanks. Yeah. I, you know, in fact, uh, right after Dr. Kirsch mentioned the uh, certain advantages of that type of practice, it came to me that that is important. Um, You know, we are able to do this even though it's an academic model because we have autonomy within our surgical practice. So we function sort of like a private practice in that we can count our opportunity costs. we can calculate what it means. And then as a, as a group, we made a decision that certain things are important, our priorities for our group. A hospital can't really do that. A hospital, you know, some of my partners who join from other academic centers, say Seattle Children's, Cincinnati Children's, actually have a number of days because they're a hospital employee that they can spend. And it's really impossible To make a week or 10 days happen without having a consequence to that. When you're a group and you have autonomy, we decided that, look, this is a priority for our group. It's part of our mission, and this is something that the partners are committed to. In that scenario, you can create an opportunity cost. What does it cost for Asim Shukla to be away for one week? What is the hit? And then find ways of compensating that. So, I think you have to have that. For me, it was having that conversation up front when I went to Chop when I was recruited there. That this is a passion of mine. I am going to do this. I think it's very important to do it up front rather than try once you're into. I've been when I left my fellowship in 2004 and joined a a, a group practice, a hospital-employed practice. Within two weeks of me joining, an email came out that because of certain. Uh, 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 legal restrictions, uh, and liabilities of operating in other countries. The corporation has made a decision that we will not support international surgery. You know, pretty soon after that, I left that practice. So know these things up front. Are you going to allow international practice? Are you going to cover me when I'm overseas? We have now an insurance plan that covers me when we're operating overseas. A lot of things that you should look on the, on the front end before you join a practice.
0: Thank you for listening to the AUA Inside Tract podcast, an official podcast of the American Urological Association. For more information, please visit auanet.org.